3: I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to I Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Now, maybe look like nothing day to you. Dow up 18 points. This would be advancing 0.28%. Nasdaq gaining 0.71%. But in fact, it was a big victory. A big victory for the bulls. (laughs) See, there are about a dozen weeks each year when we're in the heart of earnings season and the Wall Street analysts become powerful enough to control the action. This is one of those times. They've got an outside ability right now to move stocks, particularly tech stocks. And today... Because of chatter about a possible break in the trade log jam with China, not to mention the fact that Britain and Iran didn't seem to be going war over this oil tanker, the bulls were able to push all sorts of stocks higher. I think it's important that you know how this works. Behind the scenes, I'm opening the curtain, so let me give you some solid examples of how the analysts were able to move some stocks and therefore the entire market. We're going to start with Micron, Symbol, and you. This commodity semiconductor stock has been tossed back and forth like a football ever since it peaked at $64 and change last May for pulling all the way back to $28, where it bottomed in December. Now, when Micron reported last month, the company made some positive noises about the long term, not the short term, but the long term. And that was enough to send the stock into the stratosphere. It moved from 33 to 45 Big run. Then today, Goldman Sachs decided to call the bottom, well, whatever, in Micron's chips, and the stock had yet still... One more leg higher as the buyers went nuts for it. Buy, 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 buy. And that's how it could rally another 3.7% today on top of its previous move. Micron is perhaps the most important semiconductor bellwether out there. Their DRAMs and flash chips go into nearly everything. This upgrade, which came out yesterday, was the talk of the town in the hands of all places. I kid you not. People were jabbering about at the quag market, for heaven's sake, in line. They say, hey, what do you think about that Goldman upgrade? Goldman's bullish call also included the semiconductor equipment makers, like Applied Materials, and then Kramer, Fave, Lam Research. Makes sense. If you really believe commodity chips are bottoming, then you recommend the capital equipment stocks. From there, the pin action caused the entire semiconductor cohort to run, including Texas Instruments, which, by the way, reports tomorrow. That's how big a call it was. This positive action, the semis could continue tomorrow if press reports are true about Apple's buying Intel's modem business to break away from Qualcomm's stranglehold. Any consolidation in this group is positive. But speaking of Apple, you know what was even bigger news? Katie Huberty over at Morgan Stanley made a bold call one week before Apple reports earnings. One week, she publishes a piece suggesting that Apple has an attractive setup into earnings because, and I quote, investor sentiment remains negative despite improving iPhone and services data points, end quote. Oh, this is a gigantic call. Katie Huberty over at Morgan Stanley made a bold move of great significance. One week, one week before Apple reports earnings, she publishes a piece suggesting that Apple has an attractive setup into earnings because, and I quote, investor sentiment remains negative despite improving iPhone and services data points, end quote. Holy cow, this is a gigantic call. Uber is going totally against all conventional wisdom here. In fact, this very day, Tony Saginaw, he's the Sanford Bernstein uh, Apple skeptic, published a a note. It was a note explaining that the company could have weakness in the very same services division that she's excited about. Get this. Uber believes this service is accelerated and could grow as fast as 16.7%. Saginaw thinks it will be more like 12.4%. That is decelerating. Meanwhile, the consensus is right in the middle. Now, because of Uber call, Apple ran... More than two percent today. And while that may not sound like much, remember you gotta be you're dealing with a $950 billion company here. She has raised the stakes. On top of that, she also raised her price target from 231 to 247 price targets. Mean anything? Yes, it matters. It matters because Apple's currently trading at just over 207 nowhere near her previous $231 target. So why bother to raise another 16 bucks? Insult to injury? I don't know. This is it superfluous? No, not at all. It's a line in the sand. It's a statement saying, I know I'm right. You're wrong. I don't like to jinx one of my absolute favorite stocks of, my, of one of my absolute favorite companies, but Uber Eats call really messes up with the setup. We hate it in mad money when stocks run into earnings. I'm already envisioning 22nd you coming on air and saying, Oh, what I see the services are weak. Apple's best days are behind it, after the company reports. Even if you right, the risk award just got really bad. Let me give you another one. Amazon. Stock had a nice move today, in part because of a Deutsche Bank report saying that Amazon and I quote, is in the sweet spot of slightly accelerating revenue, end quote. Ugh. The analyst Lloyd Walmsley also expects some margin improvement. Oh, this is terrible. As soon as I read this thing, I said, darn it all. If you own Amazon, I can't think of a worse piece of research to come down the pike. Why? Because if anything, I fear that Amazon could report inline revenues and declining margins, given that management has repeatedly told us that they're in spending mode. After seeing the incredible pickup of Microsoft's cloud business, I'm very confident that Amazon Web Services will have a huge number. But I don't think that's enough to push the stock higher, especially not after today's positive research report. It's ratcheted the expectations, like Katy Uber do with Apple, too high. You know what actually now has a half decent setup because of the analyst community? Alphabet, the parent of Google. This morning, Stephen Jew from uh, Credit Suisse came out with a piece where he talks about how Alphabet's business could come in softer than expected. Oh, now I like this call. Jude's a, a bull. He's using a $1,400 target for this $1,139 stock. Remember, you want expectations to be as low as possible. So this reset is exactly what the bulls need. That said, Alphabet's been reporting weaker and weaker numbers, which is counterintuitive when you consider how much money the consumer product companies have been pouring into online advertising. If anything, there should be a re reacceleration of Alphabet's business. And if we got that, I think the stock would tack on $100 almost instantly. Look, I, I'd love to say all this is inside baseball. I mean, it just feels like it, right? Well, you have Katie Uber, you never heard of her. This guy, Cowan, this and that. Well, listen to me. Uh, y- you don't need to think about whatever these analysts are actually saying. But to a certain extent, I've got to be sure you understand the context. If you like a company and you believe it's doing well and you're comfortable both with the products as well as the financials, you're going to be fine. But the reaction of a stock to what we call the print uh, will often depend on what it's done beforehand. And that comes down to these kinds of calls. If Katie Huberty hadn't drawn the so-called line in the sand on Apple, I'd feel much more comfortable telling you to buy it ahead of the quarter. Now, though, if Apple fails to raise estimates, if it doesn't talk up its services business, you'll find yourself on the wrong side of the trade. If the quarter's good, you've already borrowed some of that upside. If it's bad, even for one of my faves, look out below. One thing's for sure after this run. It would be a mistake to buy Apple going into the quarter, unless you get a meaningful pullback before him. The gulf between the bulls and the bears is just too wide for us to game Apple. But the bottom line, long term, I say own Apple, don't trade it. If the quarter goes well, great. If not, I expect the stock will come down, and you'll be able to buy some more in the weakness, maybe at a much lower price. Much lower price than we got today. How about Jeff in California, please? Jeff. Hey, Jim. Repeat caller. Big fan of the show. Thank you for calling again. What's up?
0: I was doing some research on industrial gas companies. It, it looks like these are some of the best in basic materials because they have a, a, a uh, oligopoly and a lot of pricing power. Uh, I was taking a look at Lindy because it right. looks like they're one of the best. They
3: are the best. How do I you dead right. position? G- Jeff, I've got to tell you, the, the merger sh- should not have been allowed. There is so much pricing uh Price increases in this uh, in this industrial gas business. You've got the best one. We recommended at 180 after the mergers. I will reiterate right now that this stock has another 10% in it. No problem. Analysts have an outsized ability to move stocks, especially during earnings season. You need to know how this works. Peel in the curtain back. Pay attention to their calls. Weak expectations could create a nice setup. High expectations creates a bad setup. Well, man money tonight. Is it a go for grocery outlet? A few weeks after launching its IPO, I'm going to take a close look. Plus, with back-to-school season just around the corner, I'm telling you which retailers to watch, and tonight's off the charts. But first, I took a little trip today. They say money doesn't grow on trees, but that sure doesn't stop me from looking. Count to coming to us from the Home Depot in New Jersey.
2: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to MadMoney at cnbc.com. or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
1: Take your business further with a smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.
2: NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving.
3: It's the end of an era for Home Depot. When next month draws to a close, Carol Tomei, the Depot's chief financial officer and executive vice president of corporate services, will retire from the company after 24 years, including 18 years as CFO. She's presided over a period of incredible value creation. I think she's among the best in the business, if not the best. Now, before she retires, we wanted to have one last conversation with her about her legacy and the state of Home Depot going forward. We spoke to Carol earlier today at a Home Depot here in New Jersey. Take a look. Carol, I've never asked any executive this. How is this company, Home Depot, going to live without you? <laughs> oh, Jim, it's so great to be here.
1: You know, we are 40 years old as a company. I've been there for 24 of Ooh. those years. It has been an incredible blessing. I am just so excited, not about where we've been, about where we're going. It's bittersweet for sure, but the company's in great hands. In fact, Richard McPhail is going to succeed me as our CFO. He has worked for me for 13 of the 14 years that he's been at the Home Depot. He's going to do a bang-up job for
3: us. Okay, well, let's talk about the bang-up job you did. Well, thank you. people want to know, uh, what does a CFO do, and what did you do for Home Depot that was unique to Home Depot as a CFO?
1: Well, I think the best CFOs are business people first and finance people second. So, early days in my Home Depot career, I put on an apron and I worked in the stores. That was... A finance person. Absolutely. Because I realized that I needed to speak the language of the Home Depot, not the language of finance, the language of Home Depot. And along the way, I learned a whole lot about the business Everything starts with the customer. The answer to all of our strategic questions are actually found in the store. I think that made me a better finance person because when it comes to things like capital allocation, which is what CFOs should do, well, just look at this store. You can see it at work. If you look at the new signings package, that's part of a $5 billion investing plan that we have inside of our stores that's improving the experience and, oh, by the way, lifting our sales.
3: I hear you say this and the first thing that comes to mind is, aren't you going to miss it too much? I mean, if you're talking science, you love this culture. How are you going to transition out?
1: Well, you know, I've had more tears shed over the past several months than I thought were possible for a human being. And goodness gracious, no one has died. I love this company. I love the people of this company. But it's time for me to move and do something else. And the cool thing is, is that I'm long Home Depot, and my husband, Ramon, and I are creating a family foundation.
3: You are. Tell us about it.
1: So we're going to pay it forward in a meaningful way, we hope. And so we really care about how Home Depot performs because of that.
3: And uh, that is also Home Depot's uh, tradition. I was curious to know you talk about capital allocation. The company's deeply committed to veterans, yes. committed to learning and education because yes. of your boot camps. How do you allocate something towards something that the classic Milton Friedman say would say, that's not within the confines of a corporation, that's not what a corporation should be wasting its money on?
1: Well, one of our core values is to do the right thing. We've committed through our foundation $500 million for affordable living for our veterans. But it doesn't stop there. We are all about job creation. And so we've committed $50 million to create 20,000 trade jobs. That's how we can allocate capital to actually grow the business. Because if you don't have people who can do the work, your sales are capped. Pretty easy financial decision to make, actually.
3: Well, okay, that's great because I think a lot of CFOs do not view themselves as someone who should be anything other than a bit of a bean counter, which mm. you are anything but. Yeah. On conference calls where everybody knows you as the dean, uh, we always look to you to try to get a sense of the consumer, to try to get a sense of whether the invest the home owner is investing or is is the person expensing these are concepts that are core to you you've created them tell us about
1: them right well what we know that if a homeowner believes that their home is an investment and not an expense they spend more money in their home we have seen home equity values more than double since 2011 and you can see that in ourselves because people are coming in and doing major projects, be it redoing their kitchens or their bathrooms or building out their basements, creating she sheds or man caves. They feel like their home is an investment. Here's the other thing that's really interesting. As we talk to millennials, we were nervous about whether or not they wanted to own a home.
3: Right. I remember during the period, there was a period where you were worried about student debt. Exactly. about household formation and whether the millennials would ever leave the couch. Exactly.
1: Well, we saw that the largest uh, cohort of first-time homebuyers last year were those aged 33. So as they're starting to form their family unit, whatever that is, they're buying a home. But here's the other really cool thing. They've told us through our research, we want to work on our house because we think it's a good investment. So that's music to our
3: ears. Now, some other things that you've had to do, and I know you were involved with them, is you realized not by thing, which is Amazon, but by project, your professionals, which you own that market now, professionals wanted e commerce. How did this come about? Because it was not necessarily beginning initially in your culture.
1: Uh, Well, One of our core values is entrepreneurial spirit, and you might think, how can a company of your size be an entrepreneur? Well, we are constantly looking around corners trying to anticipate customer needs, wants, and desires. And what we're finding is that our professional contractors are actually finding the mobile device to be very helpful to them. They can source inventory by store. They can order and have the order shipped to their job site. That actually is important to them. So one of our major investments is going into what we call the B2B experience, which is taking our existing website and creating an experience that personalizes to you, whomever you are. So if you are an electrical pro, it will personalize to you. If you are a plumbing pro, it will personalize to you. So you see what you need for the job. Of course you can shop the entire site, but we're going to make it easier for you to get what you need. And down the road, we don't have it yet, but down the road we will have personalized pricing on that experience. Now, that is going to be competitive secret sauce because nobody else will know what we're doing but that customer and our
3: team. If I were the Fed, I would want to know what you're doing. You've got a handle on so many things. How often does the Fed check in with you?
1: Well, it's interesting. The Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank does a really nice job of reaching out to the Sixth District to talk to companies and organizations about what they are seeing in their business. It's a regional economic initiative they have underway. So I talk to the Atlanta Fed quite often.
3: All right, that's good. I feel better about that. I want to, because I feel like that you have a unique view. I want to go back to some of these social issues. Yeah. Go back to the idea. There was a couple of go on your website, which can be so good. The notion of teaching people. Computers, digital. Yeah. That was just something you, initiative, you took upon yourself. You didn't go to Stanford and get yeah. comp sci.
1: Yeah. I
3: know you were involved in that. How did it happen and how's it working?
1: So there's a war on talent in the United States. Well, I like that. And there's a war on IT talent for sure. So we went to our stores to say, okay, if you have a, a, a capacity for this, a desire to learn, we will teach you how to code. So we have brought these associates into our company and have taught them how to code, and now they're working in our IT organization. Couldn't be more proud of them. It's so exciting. Now we compliment those associates from kids that are graduate from Georgia Tech and other technology schools, but it's really cool to create careers at the Home Depot. And this is what we do at this company. We create careers. These aren't jobs, these are careers.
3: Last question. What do you want your legacy to be, 18 years, senior CFO in this country, for Home Depot, but also for women, but also for America?
1: I want my legacy to be the impact that I've had on people. Not just the people who are following me in finance, but the people of the company. When I started 24 years ago, I was all by myself. But if you look at our leadership team now, you see women in power. We have three executive vice presidents who are women today. And it's throughout the entire company. I am so incredibly proud of them. And I hope they're proud of me.
3: Well, Carol, thank you so much. You've been a great joy. Everybody follows you. Everyone wants to know what you're thinking. And you have taught so many people about business. Thank you so much. That's Carol Tomei. She is the Home Depot retiring CFO. Nearly three weeks ago, I got a call from a fellow by the name of Zach in California about a newly public company named Grocery Outlet Holding. I told him I need to do some homework. I've never been to one of these. As it turns out, this story is pretty darn intriguing, but maybe not so intriguing that it's worth buying, at least at these levels. So tonight I want to play Know Your IPO, because at the very least, Grocery Outlet is certainly worth getting familiar with. So what is this thing? Okay, Grocery Outlet runs a chain of discount supermarkets called Grocery Market Bargain Outlook. Hey, they offer terrific deals, and they try to create a treasure hunt shopping experience. Remember, think of Ollie's as one of those. People like them. Costco has that. So what kind of deals do they offer? Management says their flexible sourcing model allows them to sell name-brand products at a 40 to 70% discount to what you'd find in a traditional supermarket. Wow. I I need you to think of this company as an off-price chain Not unlike TJX or Ross stores, except it's in the grocery business. They have a terrific centralized sourcing department that exists to opportunistically buy up nationally branded products at deep discounts. And that's how the company keeps giving its customers such ridiculously low prices. Oh, I love this concept because retailers need to be online or off price if they want to win in this environment. Now, I called Grocery Outlet a chain a second ago, maybe overstating things a bit. Each store is run by independent operators who have the leeway to personalize their locations. Basically, it's like a franchise-based supermarket. The people who operate each store are small business owners, which gives them much more of an incentive to do a good job. It's kind of a neat model. Even better, Grocery Outlet is exactly the kind of regional to national growth story that Wall Street tends to get super excited about. In 2006, they had 128 stores, mostly on the West Coast. Now they have 323 stores on both the West Coast and in Pennsylvania. Because of that expansion, the company's sales have tripled. Meanwhile, they put up 15 straight years of positive same-store sales, including some incredible numbers during the Great Recession. Hey, listen to this. When the economy was down in the dumps in 2008-2009, Grocery Outlet posted 123 and 14.7% same-store sales, respectively. These numbers make you crystal clear that this is the kind of trade down play you want to own in a slowing economy. This is even better than Dollar Tree and Dollar General. Although, we don't really have that kind of economy right now, where the consumer seems to be doing just fine. Maybe there's no need to trade down. That's a principal glitch in the story. Still, you can understand why so many money managers would salivate over a discount supermarket chain with a regional and national growth narrative. No wonder people bought this stock hand over fist when it came public a little over a month ago. The grocery outlet deal was supposed to price between 15 and 17 dollars, but they had to raise the range to 18 to 19, and even then, that wasn't enough with the IPO eventually pricing at $22. it's a big jump because there was such demand. As soon as the stock started trading, it popped to $31, although it pulled back, uh, closing its first day at $28 and change. However, in the months since IPO, Grocery outlets been a powerhouse. This thing is rallying more than $10. Today it's at $39.25. Wow. A big chunk of that move came last week when a number of analysts initiated coverage of the stock with a buy. More on that in a minute. Now, before we get into what Wall Street's been saying, Let's have a look at the numbers ourselves. Thanks to a combination of new stores and low- to mid-single-digit same-store sales growth, Grocery Outlet has been able to deliver low-double-digit revenue growth for years, up 12% in 2016, up 13% in 2017, up 10% last year. Although the sales have decelerated 10% growth is still pretty darn spectacular for a grocer, especially in an environment where so many of its peers have been struggling with cutthroat competition. We've been recommending none of these stocks. I mean, think something like Kroger. It's too tough. Meanwhile, Grocery Outlet's been profitable since 2016. Although the earnings have fluctuated as they're still scaling up and expanding. Aside from that, though, the name of the game here is consistency. For years, the company's put up 20 to 30 new stores annually with steady low to mid single digit comps and steady 30% gross margins, what they make after the cost of goods sold. And we saw the same thing in the first quarter of this year. I like consistency. Oh, it's a good company, but is it also a good stock? Well, last week, the quiet period ended, which allowed the brokerage houses involved in the Grocery Outlet IPO to initiate research coverage on it. They were generally pretty positive. The stock caught five hold ratings, four buys. Oliver chenick Cowan, whom we usually know from his department store coverage, had one of the most bullish calls. He gave Grocery Outlet a $42 price target. Why? Because it's a very well-run off-price chain, and that allows the company to give the customers incredible deals which in turn means they can take tons of market share. Assuming Grocery Outlet continues to grow its footprint by 10% per year, with low single-digit same-store sales increases, stable gross margins, Chen thinks the company can generate earnings growth in the mid-teens. Don't have a lot of those. That's spectacular for a supermarket. And you know I love Chen's work. Long-term, he argues that Grocery Outlet has the potential to grow from 323 locations, which is really about the number of locations Whole Foods had, eh, a little bit less, when Whole Foods got a bid from Amazon. Uh, right, he thinks they could grow to 4,500 from that. 4,500 nationwide. I mean, these guys are already the largest operator in the off price grocery space, which means they're often the first ones to get the call when fruit producers need to clear out their excess inventory. I think Chemex makes a compelling case, and a lousy economy, grocery outlet would be the perfect kind of stock to buy. It's exactly the kind of trade down play that benefits from a weaker economy. But right now, the consumer is doing just fine. No urgency to buy, and if there's no urgency, it's tough to justify the stock's valuation. Right now, grocery outlet is pretty darn expensive. It sells for 66 times this year's earnings estimates. Remember, it has earnings. 50 times next year's numbers. Grocery Outlet's an extremely well run supermarket chain. I'm giving them that. But it's trading like a high flying tech stock. Consider the comparisons. When you look at the earnings, say, estimate for that one I mentioned, Kroger, that trades it nine times. Nine times. Sprouts, 13 times. Target, 14. Even Cremor Fave Caso sells for only 33 times, if you use the word only. Uh, You know, five below. Another one of these rapidly growing companies, that's a good comparison. still cheaper. Now, compared to these other outlets, Grocery Outlet has spectacular growth. The earnings expected to triple this year, although in 2020, Wall Street's betting will slow to 32%. And over the next five years, it could be more like a 19% on average number. Those are great figures for a grocery store chain, but they're not worth paying 50 times earnings. Plus, don't forget, Grocery Outlet is still unproven. Uh, something like Five Below is tested. It's growing in earnings at a 19% clip. It's valued at only 33 times earnings. If we value Grocery Outlet like Five Below or Costco, it would be a $25 stock. Far below its current price of $39.45. And that's what you have to think about, the compares. Of course, you really believe in the regional and national growth story, or you think the broader economy is cruising for bruising. Then you could justify paying for the premium. But how much of a premium? I could theoretically justify paying 40 times earnings for a company with a long-term growth rate in your 20, uh, although that still only gets you to $31.20. In short, Grocery Outlet, the stock, it's ahead of itself. The bottom line, when Zach in California asked me about Grocery Outlet three weeks ago, the stock was a buy. I wish I had just said it but I need to do more research. Up here, though, Grocery Outlet is an intriguing company with an exorbitantly priced stock, and I just can't count as chasing it. I guess I could summarize by saying I love the discount grocery story. I just want a discount on the price of the stock. Let's go to Joe in Georgia. Joe! Yes, good evening, Mr. Kramer, and a booyah back to you, sir. I like that. What's up? Well, I'd like to give a shout-out to my fellow nurses at the VA hospital, and I have a serious question for you. Good shout-out. Yes, go ahead. (laughs) Based on your assessment of the work IPO not that long ago, I did take your advice and did not go over $40. I picked up 100 shares at $40 a share, watched it drop down to 20% below its IPO, up today to about 17.5% below its IPO. My serious question to you, sir, is what do I do now? Which way do I go with this stock? Okay, a special shout-out for me to the VA and the nurses and all the doctors. They were all very nice to my late father, uh, who went there, I don't know, every day because it was so much fun. I'm not kidding. Okay, here's the deal. Uh, this stock is up at buck ninety-five today. And uh, we're talking about Slack, and I think that Slack is terrific. And I would, I would say, it's fine to buy more. Obviously, I don't like to buy up two bucks, but Slack is going to be a very big disruptor, and it should never have fallen from forty to here. So I like it. All right, grossly, Outlet has a spectacular growth story, but it's already run up a lot since its IPO. You know what? I say wait for the market to give you a pullback adding it to your shopping cart much more mad money ahead I'm focusing on the giants in retail that are embracing the competition from Amazon when I go off the charts now I can't blame anyone for being confused about the price of oil I'm helping you make some sense of the action and all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the lightning round so stay with Kramer Last week, we found out something pretty darn important about this particular moment in time. You know, we have two economies going. There's the smoking consumer economy, and then there's the hit-or-miss business economy. If you sell things to the enterprise, I've got to tell you, I think it is basically a (laughs) crapshoot. If you sell things to individuals, chances are really good that you're thriving. House of pleasure. And within the consumer economy, there are a handful of companies that dominate all the rest. Companies with the scale. Remember how important I talked to you about last week? The ability to be so big. The scale to squeeze their suppliers and pass on terrific deals to you, the consumer. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about WATCH, my acronym for Walmart, Amazon, Target, Costco, and Home Depot. These five players all have fabulous fundamentals, but today I want to take a step back and evaluate them from the technical side. And that's why we're going off the charts to get a better reading on Watch with the help of Bob Lai. He's the founder of ExplosiveOptions.net, as well as being really the brilliant technician, the all-star duo behind the street.com's trifecta stock newsletter. He also wrote a book, and it's called Know Your Options. According to Lang, all five of these particular charts look like they're in great shape. But given that Amazon's reporting this Thursday, gun to the head, no thank you, and Home Depot's more specialized, let's focus on Walmart, Target, and Costco. These are the three quintessential big box chains. Now, with back-to-school season just kind of right around the corner, these three could have a lot to look forward to. Remember, Watch is all about Amazon and the major retailers with the strength to resist Amazon and perhaps even beat Amazon at its own game. You know I love the fundamentals of these. I wouldn't have selected them otherwise. But Walmart, Target, and Costco have been red hot lately, and I don't blame anyone for worrying that maybe that they're too darn hot. We know what that means. It means that they're dicey and worrisome. And that's why we've got to consult the technicals to be sure that we're okay if we buy these stocks. Let's start with the daily chart of Walmart. This is the big daddy of brick and mortar retail. Lang points out that this stock's been snorting like a bull. Look at that chart. All year long. Last month, Walmart broke out to the upside on very strong fundamentals. Uh, I was very strong volume. Look at this. Look at this. Chartist volume is a polygraph. This is just a huge spike in volume. It, 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 when the volume is low, it means a move might be lying. When it's high, it means the action is telling the truth. You need, all those, you need all those shares trading to find out whether it's just a false move or real. And then there's the relative strength index, or RSI. All right, now this is uh, one of my favorites. It's an important momentum indicator, but it's been in overbought territory, that's the green, uh, for a month and a half here. Now that ordinarily means the stock may have come up too far too fast. However, you get a new term here. You get an embedded, this is embedded, an embedded overbought situation where stock is so low that money managers just keep on buying it. And that's what Lang thinks we have when it comes to Walmart. I often describe stocks like Walmart as anointed winners. Wall Street blesses them, so big hedge funds and mutual funds keep buying and purchasing shares even as they continue to run. You want to know how to spot an anointed winner? Check out Walmart's Chaken Money Flow, the CMF. That measures the level of buying or selling pressure in a given stock. It's a terrific way to figure out what the big money's doing. Now, Walmart's been in positive territory for quite some time here. Many institutions are buying this stock hand over fist. Now, normally you'd expect it to be down here a little. No, they just keep buying it on good days and bad. Now, the stock just dipped below its 10-day moving average, all right? Uh, now, you'd maybe be worried about that. I mean, that has been acting as a kind of soft floor of support. But the last time that happened was in June. And afterwards, Walmart immediately rebounded and came roaring back. According to Wang, this stock has no real resistance above here. And given that it's already hit an all-time high of 115, he thinks it's smooth sailing to $130. That's a very big call. Next up, how about the daily chart of a stock of a company that I was visiting just two weeks ago? Target. This is the smallest company in the Watch Brotherhood. Target may not have the scale of a Walmart or a Costco or even, of course, Amazon, but what what they do, they do very well. And CEO Brian Cornell has done a fantastic job of scaling up this terrific retailer. He has really, really gotten his hands dirty. He goes to a lot of stores. He understands the small square format. He's got inner city. He's got college stores. He's got everything going for it. But what does the chart tell us? Okay, Lang has spotted a nice longer-term cup-and-handle formation. Wow. i got to tell you, that's where stock makes a cup-shaped bottom right here, and then trades sideways for a period of time, forming a handle, right? And then this is one of the most reliably bullish patterns in the book. And that's why, with the stock basing at a higher level here, Lang thinks the stock is ready to resume its uptrend. I could not agree more. I would pull the trigger tomorrow. Right now, targets at 87. Once the stock manages to break out above $90, Lang expects it to really get things moving. And we could be looking at an imminent run to $100. Meanwhile, I'll take a gander at the on-balance volume line down at the bottom. Okay? This is a momentum indicator that looks at volume flow, uh, adding the volume on up days and subtracting the volume on down days. I used to do this by hand. I loved it. To predict changes in a stock's trajectory. When it's rising, Lang says it's very bullish. And look at this. Target's on-balance volume has been moving up steadily for the last two months. Even as the stock has plateaued in recent weeks, The on-balance volume keeps climbing. This is precisely what you want to see if you're going to predict the next big move. Then there's a technical tool we use less often. I've not talked about it on the show, but we're always trying to bring new things to you. It's the Ichimoku. I'm not kidding. Ichimoku Kinku Hayu, which is Japanese for one glance chart. Although it's usually translated as the Ichimoku Cloud. It uses a number of moving averages to give you a clear read of the situation. But what what you really need to know here is that when the Ichimoku cloud is green, it means bye-bye-bye. One last point on Target. Look at the Moving Average Convergence Divergence Indicator and the MACD. Uh, that's another momentum gauge. You can detect changes in a stock's trajectory before they happen. Lang's is always on the hunt for bullish MACD crossovers, where the black line goes above the red line. This is a little tougher here. This is one of the most reliably positive signals. Target looks like it's about to make a bullish crossover. That could ignite the stock, which is why it's Lang's favorite name in the group. I personally would love to see this already crossover. I think Lang doesn't want it to... It uh, doesn't want you to miss the opportunity. Finally, let's check out one of my absolute, let's go to Costco, okay? This is Costco's daily chart. The stock has been sensational. Do you know that this stock has gained 38% year-to-date? Even better, two weeks ago, Costco broke out to the upside on high volume. Now, remember, you, whenever you're looking at this volume, that lie detector. Hey, speaking of volume, the on-balance volume, okay? The on-balance volume, the cumulative measure of the volume, remember I told you this by hand, flowing shows an incredibly strong hand. Look at this. That's beautiful. Higher highs, higher lows. It just keeps climbing. To me, I thought this was too high and too aggressive. But you know what? Lang points out that the relative strength index uh, off the charts is ridiculous, RSI. And it's good. Costco is very much in the overbought territory, but it's embedded overbought. That's why he's a little concerned that the stock, though, may be getting getting a little bit toppy here. He's not totally convinced that it's perfect for what I just said. Now, that said, the Ichimoku cloud is green and expanding, a very bullish sign. And if Costco gives you even a minor 1% pullback, Lang thinks it's a buy, and that's what I think is going to happen. You pull back to here, buyers will come in. So he and I end up agreeing. Put it all together, and he believes Costco's headed for $300. Not that much from here. Although it might take a slight detour lower before resuming its run. The bottom line, you know I like Watch. I like Walmart, right? Amazon, Target, Costco, Home Depot. Uh, And I really like his thesis on Target and Costco. Uh, I'm not as uh, enamored of Walmart, I think targets the best of three, just like he does. So the charges interpreted by Bob Lang. It's just that all three, though, could have plenty of upside levels. What can I say? How about great minds think alike? Stick with Kramer. It is time! It's over the light! It's over our and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, dad Time for the lightning round. We're going to start with Ryan in Illinois. Ryan.
0: Hey, Jim.
1: I just got a question about Range Resources Corporation. Uh, I had it for a while on the
3: thing two or four. Well, because so, it's natural gas, opinion. natural gas liquids, and we remain very bearish. And that's, yeah, that's the weakest part of the entire petro chain. Eric in California. Eric. Hey, Jim, a big Manhattan beat booyah to you. Oh, boy, it's I'm probably more wet. beautiful than my Manhattan itself. What's out? up? I'm a newlywed, my wife wants a house, and I'm looking to get started with garden health, GH. Well, you know, it's a little speculative, but it's gene sequencing, and I've been recommending all those stocks, whether it be Thermo Fisher or whether it be Danaher. Let's throw that one in ah! more speculative than mine, though. Let's go to Sean in Nebraska. Sean. Kramer, a big-time Omaha, Nebraska, booyah to you! Very hard to beat that. Thank uh, you so much. What's up? I, I just got done playing Warren Buffett's Paper Wizard with Stan the Man at the Kiewit Barbershop down here in downtown Omaha. Have you ever been playing that game? Wow. Maybe not. It's no, I've never played. played. Stan, will make you look sharp. But my question today is about the uh, the railroads. Last week, recording earnings were mixed. What do you think of Burlington Northern and Berkshire Hathaway? Whoa. Remember, Burlington Northern itself is buried within Berkshire Hathaway. Look, Warren Buffett is his great <laughs> opportunity. I've been recommending that stock since the show began. I'm unwavering. Michael in Florida. Michael! Hey, Jim, thank you for everything you do for us. No uh, problem. We appreciate it. And uh, please don't ever leave because you could not be replaced. Well, thank you. Um, that's a nice thing to say. I'm going to just well, leave it at that. Thank it, you. What's it's up?
0: true. Uh, Seattle Genetics. uh, Oh, wow. They had some great
3: data last week. We had faith in them even when we visited them about, I don't know, about a half dozen years ago in Seattle. Great quarter, great information. Remember, trades on research reports about what they've got going, and it's good. Let's go to Mike in California. Mike. Hey, Jim. First time caller. Pretty new to the stock market. I just wanted to get your uh, opinion on that uh, Zanebra Pharmaceuticals. Um, I think you can do great things for the uh, human Holy side cow. of things, Zinebra. but also... Z-Y-N-E? Do you know this is the second call that I... second. Uh, I got one today at Home Depot at Z-Y-N-E and both of them, i got to say, no cannabinoid special needs. If you want it, it's GW Pharma. That's the way to play it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, it's... <laughs> well, big news. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the lightning round!
2: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TG Ameritrade.
3: What the heck is going on in the oil market? When a couple of Iranian speedboats seize a British oil tanker, too many barrels of The instead of removes one of the main arteries for the transportation crude, wouldn't you expect prices to soar? Hey, maybe a 10% increase? Instead, West Texas crude went up less than a dollar. It's still down $20 from its peak last October, right before the double whammy uh, moment where Fed Chief Jay Powell promised to overshoot with rate hikes, and Vice President Pence started pushing for a new Cold War with China. Since then, oil simply hasn't been able to recover, and the oil stocks, they just keep getting worse and worse. Why is that? Well, you've got four different things going on here that we have to discuss. First, even though 21% of the world's oil travels through this 21-mile, this uh, choke point right here, this trade of moves, the market doesn't seem to be taking Iran's actions seriously. It's like Iran's taunting Britain, and the British are saying, hey, hey give us a break here, hold on, uh, hey, give us some time. We're really jammed here with this Brexit right now. Now, you'd think that they'd attack this tanker uh, with a couple of Boston whalers with twin 80s. It's so pathetic. Second, demand. Oil traders see... a. Uh, slowing global economy, and they figure the price of crude won't be able to return until Europe rebounds or there's a true ceasefire in our trade war with China. Otherwise, there's too much supply versus worldwide demand. Third, you'd think it would matter that Russia and Saudi Arabia have joined forces to limit the supply of oil and prop up prices, right? I mean, there's never been such ironclad cooperation between these two gigantic oil producers. Remember, Russia's not in OPEC, but it hasn't impacted the market one bit. Why? Again, because of U.S. production. It just keeps growing and growing. At various points, both the Russians and the Saudis have tried to wipe out U.S. producers by pushing the price of crude down to the low 30s. It didn't work. We've gone from producing 5.4 million barrels a day in 2005 to 12 million barrels a day right now. Scott Sheffield, the CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, says we will reach 17 million within a few years. That's way too much oil for the world to absorb. And you know what? The oil market simply can't handle that kind of supply. No wonder a shrewd operator like Chip Johnson, many-time guest on Mad Money, he's the co-founder and CEO of Carrizo, would sell his company to Callen, small, small company, for $13 a share in change, even though his stock was at $57, $57, a little over four years ago, What a come down. Amazingly, crude was also at 57 back then, yet the stock is so much cheaper now because Wall Street has no confidence in oil's ability to rally. None whatsoever. Finally, that's what I call the holder dilemma. This industry has promised higher prices for ages. Even on Slumber's Day's conference call just last week, management claimed the turn is here. Now, I actually genuinely believe in Slumber's Day as a stock. I think the stock is a buy because almost every line item is improving, and the ones that aren't, they're going to jettison. But few believe them because they've been bullish for ages. This morning we got a very good quarter from their rival Halliburton, that might change perceptions. Hall up more than nine percent today. That said, Halliburton has a lot more North American exposure than Schlumberger. By the way, it's not like business is booming. They just announced that they're laying off eight percent of the workforce because of the slowdown in U.S. drilling. Maybe that's why the stock went higher. At the end of the day, though, if you want to know why the oils are so hated. It's very straightforward. We're producing tremendous amounts of crude in this country, even with a declining rig count. That puts a lot of downward pressure on pricing. Meanwhile, as long as people are worried about the trade tensions with China, oil's a loser. If the trade war ends, oil will rally. But for now, the real issue is credibility. Almost no one has faith in the oil patch because these companies have been so wrong for so long about the direction of crude. That's a lot to overcome. No wonder the stocks are so hated. And it could get even worse as millennials who've been raised with the sure knowledge that fossil fuels are destroying the world grow up to become tomorrow's big portfolio managers. Stick with Craig. News out tonight that the White House has reached some sort of debt deal uh, with Congress that will raise the ceiling on the debt. You know what? Big deal? Eh, just get it out of the way while earnings are about to happen. I don't think it hurts. I'm not sure how much it helps. But anything that shows less discord is probably pretty positive for the market. i like to say there's always a bull market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here made money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. People
1: today
2: can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Jenny!